0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, talk show host Armstrong Williams and civil rights attorney Ben Crump share their concerns about the education system in America. They're interviewed by Politico education editor DeLise Smith-Barrow. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to get into this discussion about crisis in the classroom. So one thing that I kept thinking about as I was reading the book is that we have Benjamin Crump, a lawyer, and then we have Armstrong Williams, an entrepreneur, so not exactly teachers or school administrators. What inspired you all to write about the problems of the U.S. education system?
0: Well, you know, um, if you come from a family that emphasized education, um, and you've experienced education firsthand, and you know what work for you in the classroom what worked for you at home the kind of teachers that were necessary in order for you to get the most out of an education every day when you were a pupil in that room and the fact when you fast forward to where we are today and you see these visible numbers not just in baltimore which has inspired attorney crump and dr carson and i to write this book but it's just all across the country and the impact that it especially has on minority children and, and children who are brown-skinned. You have to ask yourself, you keep talking about this issue, and why does it get worse and not get better? And for myself, as a broadcast owner, we create these crises in the classrooms across the country where we talk to teachers, administrators, we talk to parents, we taught to students, and basically they say the same. Why is it that when it comes to uh, public education versus private education, in private education you don't have many of the same issues and, and, the, and the kids learn. While you have your challenges, the kids learn uh, and they do very well on these standardized tests. They, did very, they would do very well on the SAT tests. And so we realize, particularly with Attorney Crump, who, and many people look at us and say there are ideological differences, but what we have to realize sometimes, we have to put down our ideological armor and come together, especially... When it comes to education because education is truly a passport to the future whether you're reading a book and you travel places that you've never gone before and someday you travel to those places whether you can read you're in a classroom it gives you real self-esteem and real confidence you can balance a checkbook um you know you have an opportunity not to end up in the prison system uh, end up in sexual trafficking uh, end up uh without the opportunity at least have a chance at the american dream and education you ask any country around the world when an electorate is educated and the child gets the best of an educate, education, most countries fare very well um, no matter what crises they may, fa- may face because you have an educated citizenry that can respond, whether it's in the STEM, the science, technology, engineering, or math, or whether you take a special craft like whether it's carpeting, whether you become an electrician, because listen, College is not for everyone, but everyone needs to have the skill to give them real self-esteem, to continue to build the American dream and the American way of life.
1: I hear you on the, the point that you made about college not being for everyone. And it's something that um, is addressed in the book, how there needs to be more encouragement for children to pursue trades, because those can also be very lucrative, and often you don't incur the level of debt that comes with going to college. So I do hear you on that. But is it, does it make sense for people who all went to college to write a book, kind of mentioning that you don't need to go to college um, to, you know, to do well, to you know, reach your goals in life, like? Do you feel any type of, um, I guess, slight hypocrisy in this mentioning of you can do well in the trades, but all of you have done extraordinarily well through your collegiate pursuits?
0: Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know um, if it's. I, I think much of this has to do with um, what your parents pour into you as a child. I, I think, uh, and this may be. Uh, Attorney Crump may challenge me on this. I think your actual confidence and your real self-esteem comes from having a father in the household. I think Attorney Crump and I grew up in a generation in an age where you had far more fathers in the household than than you have today. And when there's not a father in the household, there's a vacuum, and there's a, really an extra burden on mothers and grandmothers um, to only not only teach kids about. The things that they enjoy you have to discover what their skills are you may find someone who is very artistic you may find someone who's very musical you can find someone who's very good at numbers and very good at math you can find someone who could be a great orator those skills have to be developed early on which is why uh when we were growing up my parents always read to us and some mothers and fathers read to their kid when they're in in the womb. So I don't think it's so much about the classroom. It's discovering what that kid is best at and what they're gifted at and placing them in an environment because I think education now is too cookie cutter we want to put everybody in the same box and we forget about the individuality of that school and so what we do we follow these programs where every kid adhere to the same curriculum and the same curriculum does not adhere uh, does not work for every kid every kid is an individual then they learn differently and they become enthusiastic differently so it's about finding that kid's skill finding that kid's gift whether it's in the classroom whether it's in a vocational school whether it's playing the piano in the church choir, just give that child something that they can build and grow from, uh, whether it's whether they decide to go to college or not. But I do think that a basic education and some kind of vocational training is very important for that co- kid to have real success and real stability in, in life, especially here in the United States, where, we, believe it or not, it is very competitive.
1: So I'm going to pivot to Mr. Crump for a second. Mr. Crump, um, you have spent quite quite so many years and really forged a career representing black families who have been harmed by violence. Um, They have, you know, they've witnessed their brothers, their sons, um, their daughters killed. So I kind of go back to you again and say, why would you um, write a book about education as opposed to social justice or activism or even the criminal justice system you know, what kind of makes, what kind of positions you to write about the crisis in the classroom?
2: Well, thank you, DeLise, for having Armstrong and I on your program. And there are many things that I and Armstrong will speak to, uh, to say why we wrote this book. But more importantly, what the overall objective is with this book and our missions in life, and that is to try to make a better world for all of our children. And when people uh, think of me, they are aware of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, Maude Aubrey, those high profile civil rights cases where there were our young people taken from this earth far too soon. But what I try to be every day is a civil and human rights lawyer who is an advocate against discrimination and racism wherever it rears its ugly head. And we see far too often in education that our children, children of color, are disproportionately disenfranchised with a lack of quality education. And as I say in the book, the least if you don't get a quality education in America's society today it's already like you're in a prison cell they just haven't slammed the jail cell door and so what we try to do is say we have to find solutions because it is fundamental to be successful in this society you have to be educated today and so Regardless of our political persuasions, Armstrong and I certainly don't agree on everything, but we do agree that there's a crisis in the classroom. There's a crisis in American education. My wife is an educator, and she constantly talks about how we're failing our children that. We have to put more, pour in more into education. It has to be a primary objective. We can't keep putting it on the back burner because what I see in courtrooms all across America, when they don't get a quality education, the government still ends up pouring into them, regrettably, is pouring into a prison system where mass incarceration looks very... uh, Regrettably, it looks very familiar like it looks in our minority communities. I never forget Congresswoman Frederica Wilson from Miami, Florida, who has a program, Armstrong, called 100, I'm sorry, 1,000 Role Models. And it's primarily an organization of just young uh, black boys and young adult boys who are African-American. And they took a trip. To the prison in Miami, Florida, to say, This is where you don't want to end up at. And, you know, they wanted to have them see realistically when you don't choose education and you choose to try to make fast money and all this stuff, where you end up at in the prison system. And one young eight year old boy asked a riveting question that burns in my heart constantly. He asked Congresswoman Wilson, as they looked in the prisons, and they looked who was populating the prisons in uh, South Florida, he said, Congresswoman Wilson, where's the prison for white people? Because all he saw were mostly young black men who have, you know, become part of the school to prison pipeline. And so when you say, why we write this book? We write this book because we think, Everybody has to be part of the solution. We have to get everybody at the table. We have to get the businessmen at the table. We have to get the religious community at the table. We have to get the educators at the table. We have to get the politicians at the table. We have to get everybody at the table to say we can do better than this, America. And that's what this book is about because essentially it comes back to what the great Educator Booker T. Washington said, he said it is easier to build up strong children than to try and repair broken men.
1: No, that's powerful. And I want to get into some of the solutions that you all propose in the book. So first I'm going to start with Mr. Williams. So Mr. Williams, you talk about television, radio, Movies, how these things should be generally banned because they can be to the detriment, uh, particularly black children's um, educational pursuits. You mentioned Kim Kardashian, you mentioned Justin Bieber, and how you know kids need to watch them less and read more. But in 2022, and in an, you know in an age where oftentimes TV, online videos are used as tools to teach children. You know there are videos where you can learn how to identify shapes. Numbers, colors, is it realistic to tell families, you know, have a general ban on TV and media of that sort? Is, does, is that something that's truly attainable? Or sh- and should it even be attainable?
0: Well, you know, um, the lease, it all goes back to the family and the authoritarian figures in the household. Uh, and whether those authoritarian figures are respected and admired. You know, I can only um, go back to my childhood, um, when I grew up with televisions, but we had to earn the right to watch that TV after reading books and reading back to our parents, after completing assignments, and after my parents had conversations with teachers to get a a true reading on exactly how well we were doing in the classroom and whether or not there were deficiencies. I mean, every household is different. You have mothers who work three or four jobs just to make ends meet, and a lot of these kids become latchkey kids, so there's really not any real supervision as to really monitor what these kids are learning, what what they're watching, what they're reading. And even during the COVID pandemic, when you had um, kids learning virtually, many of these kids and these families did not even have internet. And sometimes this internet would just go completely non-existent. Do you think that many of these students will run to mommy and daddy and say to them, oh, my internet is no longer working? Sometimes it would be days before parents realize that the children doesn't even have an internet signal. And so for us, you know, we want to our parents to be proud of us because, you know, there's no one that I trusted more than my father and my mother. And so even if I were living in the kind of um, atmosphere that we find ourselves in, uh, I would make sure that all the tools are necessary to get the best education. If those tools are not there, I would communicate that with my parents. But households are not what they used to be. And so when you say, is it realistic to turn off uh, rap music, whether to turn off violent videos, and turn off videos that don't reinforce values and don't reinforce education. And sometimes it reinforces violence, reinforces turning women into sexual creatures, and and, and reinforces some of the least common denominator and some of the worst virtues of our society. That is very difficult, especially given the fact that many of these households don't have men to sort of reinforce these values. And it also plays out the least... In the, in the classroom, in the, in, in, in the schools. Why? Because there are very few men, with the exception of maybe in sports, are in the classroom. These kids, and whether you want to believe it or not, especially young men, they don't respond to women in the classroom as they respond to men. There, it, statistics have shown that these young men and women, uh, naturally, it's a natural instinct for them to show respect and respect the guidelines and the instructions of men in the classroom. So it's no different than the household. So no, it's not realistic, but everything that they're learning online is not re- reinforcing a quality education. And it creates the least, it creates such a dilemma because I'm not here to solely blame the parents and then blame the teachers. I mean, they're facing a, an uphill battle and, and many of these kids are hungry Some of them don't get to sleep at night. Some of them don't even have a shelter. Some of these kids are actually homeless. We've seen this in Baltimore. We've seen it in Washington, D.C. and many major cities. And so the challenges that kids have today are not the challenges that I had to face when I was growing up, when I grew up in a warm environment with food on the table. Parents that love me reinforced the art of learning. And so. And my father, who only got a third grade education, and my mother, who got a sixth grade education, emphasized, I don't want you. I did not get an education because I didn't choose to get an education. I had to work on the sharecroppers farm. I had to do this in order to make ends meet. I don't want this to be the outcome for my children. So my parents emphasized through their own stories about how much more they wanted for themselves that the only satisfaction and the peace that they could ever get and how they had to come up and the sacrifices they had to make in their lives is to put that sort of on their that onus on their children to do better to get a better education make the parents proud so you can pass it on to the next generation so this is a very complicated situation but i can tell you this and i've learned this in in this book it doesn't matter with some kids no matter what their background is what kind of crises they might find themselves in when kids really want to learn, they can learn and they can make that classroom their footstool. I don't think learning has anything to do with black and white. A child doesn't learn because they're black and they don't learn because they're white. A child learns because someone believes believes in them, gives them the tools to learn, reinforce those tools, and when those tools are not working, they give them tutors and whatever is necessary and the resources to make sure that child learns. All too often we give up on these children and we say the situation is hopeless. But every child should be given an opportunity to learn and the necessary tools to make that possible.
1: I want to go back to something you said about um, learning and education not being about whether a child is black or white. But is it not true that systemic racism does play a factor into where you learn, how you learn, what type of teachers you have in the classroom, what type of parks or even near the school um so how do you how do you balance what's happening in the classroom with general systemic racism that affects children's um you know their food their health care their housing all these things um, mr crump what do you what do you think about systemic racism and how that factors into these various crises
2: certainly said. before i answer that question i wanted to piggyback on some things that armstrong uh, williams was just saying um, unlike Armstrong, I uh, grew up with a single mother household. My mother raised me and my two little brothers by working two jobs uh she She got up and she cleaned hotel rooms early in the morning from what we used to say in North Carolina from can't see hours. Uh, and sometimes she worked into can't see at night, because after she left the hotel, she would come home and uh put food on the table uh and then she would go to the converse shoe factory and she would work the second shift until the evening before she came home, and she sacrificed so much for my brothers and I to be able to put food on the table a roof over our heads and hope in our hearts. And I always remember my mother telling me as a young boy that life wasn't fair. She said, life is hard. You make it fair by what you bring to the table. And if you don't bring nothing to the table, don't expect anybody to let you sit down at the table. And I never forgot that. And I remember my, gr- my mother saying education was something to bring to the table. Because once you got it up here, she said no one could ever take it away from you. And I always remembered that. Uh, She always, even though she was working uh, minimum wage jobs, she understood that education was the key. And she wanted her boys to have an education, uh, to be able to have an equal opportunity at achieving the American dream. And uh, I just I even remember when I graduated from college, the first thing I said to my mama is I'm bringing something to the table now because children, uh, young people have to understand how important education is. And when we say education, we're not just talking about college degrees or anything. They're all matters of education that one can uh, better themselves at. I had a college uh, administrator, Dr. Bob Leach, who once said that an educated person, an educated man will always, uh, I'm sorry, an intelligent person, an intelligent man will always find a way to be able to take care of their family. He said, notice, I did not say an educated man, but an intelligent man, an intelligent person. So intelligent people, they understand That education comes in all different fashions and forms, but you must always try to be a lifelong learner and you must always try to be smarter today than you were yesterday. And so I say all of that to say this systematic racism and implicit bias play uh, a role in us getting this disproportionality in educational outcomes Absolutely. We'll be naive to say it doesn't. But if we teach people how to be intelligent, that education is important, they will overcome those obstacles of racism and bigotry and bias, because we have shown throughout our existence in this country that black people, brown people, Asian people, Native people, Jewish people, everybody once they have the benefit of intellect, that they can overcome those terrible, horrific impediments that exist in American society. And we have to continue to deal with issues of the digital divide and all matters of racism that exist in society today. But we must not curse the darkness, we must strike a match and say, we can do better. Let's get everybody to the table because if you just keep talking about how bad it is, then you're not going to be focusing on how good it can be and what we have to do to make it better. I don't remember my mother ever dwelling so much on how much we didn't have as she inspired us to think about what we were going to obtain in the future. You know, if I
0: could add to that, because sure. it just it just warms my heart to hear a civil rights icon that I have much respect for, like Attorney Crump, talk about there will always be issues of isms and racism and prejudice and bigotry, but that's not all the story. I mean, We are defined by the struggle, how we make it through, not because of, but in spite of. And people who have come through this bigotry and this racism and this segregation, they have this spiritual currency. And you've got to let that currency grow by getting the best education by stomping out these prejudices. And you do this through an education. When I grew up, we did not drink from the trough of bigotry and racism. Yet, yes, my parents experienced it, but that is not what they poured into us. They did not pour bitterness into us. They poured in us the ability to learn. They said, you were created in God's image. And you have the ability to learn, to overcome whatever obstacle that lay before you. Don't ever look for excuses. You go in and be the best student that you can be. You get the best grade, um, and that would be the best outcome. He said, my father always said, in life, give your best. And you can await the results in peace. And so in, ter- terms, instead, in terms of ins- instead of talking about the racism and bigotry, talk about how you overcome. Don't feed and say to your kid, you got to be five times as good at. D- they will never give you respect. You can you will never be equal. You will never add up. No, because none of us know what life is presents and what life may bring. But when life presents these opportunities, you must have the tools, the intelligence that Attorney Crump talked about, to take advantage of. Like Abraham Lincoln once said, I will prepare myself, and when the time comes, I will be ready. Education prepares you for whatever time Mm -hmm. that is, so you are ready when the opportunity is laid
1: bare before you. Well, Mr. Williams, you mentioned giving your best and how that will help determine you know what happens next and can really just carve a lane for you to excel and I do understand that but at the same time in the book you mention um, affirmative action and how that you know is a it doesn't really help kids excel so would that not be helpful in kind of writing some of these wrongs in the classroom if affirmative action was was used to you know kind of level the playing field in some ways?
0: You know, it's, it's fascinating how we believe that our government can right wrongs that they've created. I mean, affirmative action has only benefited white women in this society, if I can just be so candid and brutal. Black people have never really benefited from affirmative action, especially the poor, the disadvantaged on the bottom rung of the ladder. Affirmative action is just a bourgeois boondogger for white women and elite blacks. Nobody's talking about affirmative action. I mean, you need to give people real teeth, uh, real opportunities and real programs that can change their trajectory, because very few people will ever benefit from affirmative action. The only people talking about affirmative action are the elitists, not everyday Americans.
1: How are you defining elite, though, and how are you defining everyday Americans? And I only ask this because... Um, oftentimes we hear those, those words used, we hear it used in media, but it can be pretty vague. I feel like affirmative action is something that I first learned about, you know, when I was in elementary school and I was far from elite. My parents did not have any money. Um, so I do think that it's a real concept. Um, and I, I understand that, yes, it has often benefited um, white women, but can you say that it has never benefited black children, Latino people? That feels um, that feels so like such a grand statement.
0: Well, let me make it grandier. Eighty percent of them have never benefited from it. The, the people that benefit from it is in contracting, is in terms of uh, uh, jobs and of, of 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 the higher echelon. Um, affirmative action um, um, certainly gives people an opportunity to be a part of a minority, contract and to get a piece of the pie, and I'm not condemning that. While that works for some people, you know, uh, I was a, I w- I was a, an assistant to Justice Thomas for four years when he was at the EEOC, and he talked about how he was at Yale Law School, and they talked about this thing called affirmative action that really never exists for someone like himself. And, when, and now that he's on the court, people would like to say his seat is there because of affirmative action. His seat is there is because he got the best grade. He took advantage of the opportunities. We never ascribe affirmative action to a Ruth Bader Ginsburg or someone who's squat on the court. It's always ascribed to blacks. And when someone gets an opportunity and they achieve, somebody will say, well, I bet they got that because of affirmative action. What affirmative action does, not only does it malign, but it, it marginalizes the true success of what parents do. Like my our parents did to bust their chops to work hard to pay for my college education. While I got scholarships, my parents felt they did made a very decent living on the family ranch, and my parents paid the pocket money out of their pockets for me and any of my brothers and sisters who wanted to go to college. Affirmative action had absolutely nothing to do with it, and I had to bust my chops in the classroom to get those grades and the continued success trajectory that I continue to today. So while affirmative action may help some, don't allow it to marginalize people whose parents who put the sweat equity in, educated their children and affirmative action has absolutely nothing to do with
1: it. Okay, I want to pivot quickly um, to make sure that we get to so many of the topics that your book addressed. So one thing that comes up time and time again is teachers um, and how they factor into any child's development and um, kind of going in hand with that teachers' unions. Um, Mr. Williams, you mentioned that teachers' unions um, are not really for, for the child and they're not always thinking of the student. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? You know, I'm a broadcaster
0: and, I, and I'm not going to call any names, but I once heard someone very high up in the teachers' union when someone was having a conversation with them, why is it doesn't seem that it's not always the best interest of the child, and they said it best. When the child starts paying us, then we'll start looking out for their interests. And let me tell you something. The more uh, these unions gain power, the less educated these children become. They put together these, these curriculums. Um, that's not necessarily for the benefit for the child to learn. It's about for them to continue to indoctrinate and, and maintain their power and justify these dues that they fleece out of uh, out of parents and everyone else. And while they may have done good in the past, much of their purpose has been lost. They do more um, to impact the diseducation of our children. Nobody wants to talk about it because if, when you look at private schools like charter schools that don't have to deal with these unions and they get to treat these kids individually, um, they if an administrator doesn't work, they can let that administrator go. Uh, if, if, if a curriculum doesn't work, they can change it on a dime. And I'll say this again, and I know Mr. Crump is going to challenge me on this, okay? But listen, they're not doing anything, in my opinion, that's furthering the education of children to learn in a thriving environment. In fact, they've become, in my opinion, the major obstacle to children and to teachers, because teachers' hands are tied. Uh, If they go against the grain, they can get fired. They don't necessarily get promotions, and they're frowned upon. Even teachers cry privately about how they find themselves not being able to teach. They want to teach, but they become so many other things in the classroom. They become the teacher. um, They become law enforcement. They become the counselor. They become the therapist. They do everything in the classroom except teach the kid.
1: So, Mr. Crump, you are a lawyer, so I'm guessing you know about unions and how they work. And it's my understanding that unions are to protect the employee. And when I was reading about um, how unions factor into the the crisis in the classroom, I kept thinking if there's an entity that's been designed to to make sure that the teacher is okay, if the teacher is okay, that's going to be to the benefit of the child, right? So, Mr. Crump, I ask you, do teachers unions do they do they hold students back or do they or do you think that they help excel um what's already been placed in the classroom
2: well as i said me and my uh, brother armstrong don't agree on everything i think he is an excellent uh, businessman a great entrepreneur Uh, but i do think that he comes from a different perspective and we do need everybody's perspective at the table doesn't mean we have to agree with all of them. I think teachers' unions and unions in general do a a very important job to make sure that the marginalized uh, people in America have a voice to be uh, heard by the powers that be. I think teachers' unions in particular must challenge uh, in many regards for the public schools who often times are marginalized uh, as Armstrong and Dr. Carson and I have debated. I think that charter schools are not the solution. I Mm -hmm. think the majority of uh, people in America, especially uh, people of color, are going to be educated in public schools. So we have to understand that resources we take from the public schools then make it more challenging to educate black and brown uh, children. And so these teacher unions are arguing that, hold on, you can't just take the resources from the public schools. Teachers are already getting the lowest pay. We want them to be encouraged to stay and follow their passion of educating children with the understanding, because we have to be realistic, they still have to make money to be able to have a house, to be able to afford their, uh, to put food on the tables for their families as well. And so I think when we start pointing the fingers, that becomes the problem. What we have to do is say, no, no, we are all. Part of the problem, all of us. But we all can be part of the solution. And you have to look at it from that vantage point. The reason we got to this crisis, I believe, in American education today is because everybody is pointing a finger at each other versus trying to say, let us take a personal stake and get into the table and trying to espouse our ideals, but also trying to listen to others because that means if we sit at a table and we force ourselves to work together, then we can make progress. If we don't work together, and I know we're coming up on Dr. King's uh, you know, uh, commemoration, we're on this boat together and either we're going to find a way to survive and thrive together or are we gonna perish separately? And education starts that whole conversation in a profound way, that we have to figure out how to do it together to make a better world for our children. I would be, I, I would never be as arrogant to come up and say, I have all the answers. I don't think Armstrong We'll say that either, or Dr. Carson, or anybody. But at the least, I think all of us have a perspective to help get to the solution of how we don't have these dismal results where you have that, such a high dropout rate, such a high illiteracy rate. No, we have to challenge those things. We have to change their uh, mentalities. And so... I believe in unions, I support unions, and I hope that when we're at the table, everybody can respect everybody's perspective. The union's perspective is just that. We have to fight for the American teacher who is often maligned by politicians who've never set foot in a classroom, but yet they feel they know all the answers and they know better than teachers who struggle every day to try to educate the children. And I think the bureaucrats do a lot to stop the teachers from being able to perform to their highest level. They they in some ways members of the government with the standardized testing and everything don't incentivize teachers to go out and really try to spot that uh Point of the brain and the student to say it's not just about passing a standardized test. It's about learning how to engage in intellectual thinking, strategic thinking, diplomacy, you know, critical uh, analysis. That's what we need our teachers to be doing and we need to be encouraging them. And if the unions are doing that, then I see the unions as being part of the solution. An interesting
0: observation. is the problem with the unions is that they're more interested in maintaining the system than developing the individual student. Um, And let's look at during the COVID pandemic, when the unions put the school systems in a situation where they put in place this virtual um, learning. Anybody with a modicum of common sense would have known that a few years later that our kids would suffer in math and in English and our scores and our standards would drop drastically. They're so bent on their way or the highway that sometimes they don't want to even listen to common sense. And then you have people making decisions about the classroom who has never been in the classroom. And they make decisions based on their maintaining their power, not what's in the best interest of the child. And also... And I don't think my friend, Attorney Crump, would disagree with this. Say whatever you want to say about school choice and and, 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 and private education. They don't have the dismal um, results as, as many of the public schools. I think if a parent, especially if a parent decides that if that school is not working for their child, they should have a right to have a voucher, which... The government should pay for it because they are paying for it in in public schools that are failing and they're doing the same in private school. They should be able to have a voucher where they can say, I want to take my child out of this public school and place that child in a private school where I think that my child has the best chance of learning and developing. Because they realize that child is their bread and butter in the future, and they're dependent on that child to take care of them, and so they want to assure that they get the best education. What is wrong with choice in education if a parent is making that decision? Why would we fight and why would we be against that, especially when statistics have shown that in many instances, it does work for that parents. It, it will never replace the public schools, Mr. Cr- Mr. Crump. The public schools will always be there, but at least for those parents where public schools don't work and have not worked, it will not work, give them the opportunity to have choice in education.
2: Well, another thing uh, Armstrong and I don't agree on that. We We talk and we listen to each other because we try to learn and we understand that we can disagree yet not be disagreeable. I think when you take money from the public schools, you know, I am a disciple of Thurgood Marshall. Uh, His most famous case, obviously, Brown versus the Board of Education. It was about trying to be able to give children an equal opportunity at education. And we all know once you started... uh, being able, you were not able to deny black people access to education, they came up with all counter impediments to try to make sure there was not an even playing field. The South Carolina Bar Association and then all the other states across America started having a test when they could not deny African Americans for going to law schools. And the bar exam then became a way to keep black people from uh, being able to practice law in those states. There are always these impediments that they try to come up with to prevent uh, everybody from having an equal opportunity at education because they understand how important education is. And so I say that to say this, when you allow whatever you call it, uh parents choice or charter schools or what have you what you are doing is having some basic element that you have marginalized people of color not being able to get the enhancements that we're offering to others in society The majority of black students and Hispanic students are never going to be allowed to go to charter schools. We have to accept that at least as a reality that the majority of minority students in America and the majority of students in America are going to go to public schools. So why don't we try if we want to give everybody an equal opportunity at education to enhance public education. And I think that's what in many ways the unions advocate for. Uh, um, Am I saying they are right on everything? No. Am I saying that the politicians are wrong on everything? No. But I'm saying that we have to find common ground and we have to listen to one another because this is about our children. We all have to take our egos out of it. It's about the children being protected from the school to prison pipeline, being protected from being imprisoned in their mind because they don't have a quality education. Mr.
1: Crump, one thing that you mention in the book, in terms of um, a solution, is having people, having Black communities focus more on decreasing um, Black-on-Black violence. Why focus on um, Black-on-Black violence as opposed to um, violence that that Black people feel that come from from other races or you know people from um, other ethnicities?
2: Certainly, I, and I, I I think it's. Uh, crime on crime. There's white on white crime and their communities because people commit crimes normally where they're at. And so if you live in a majority black community and you commit crime, people will call it that and people will call, you know, Hispanic or Hispanic crime, what have you. Our society proliferates this myth of black on black crime. But I will say this. I believe people resort to crime when they don't have viable alternatives and that's why education is so important. I continue to believe that if a person has an option to be able to go work a job and be able to put resources on the table and bring it home for their family, they will choose that versus uh, risking their liberty and risking their life engaging in criminal activities, but we have to be able to give our children these fundamental, critical thinking applications that are learned at home and learned at the, the schools. I think there's such a great disservice done with all of these uh videos and these social media and TikToks that just glamorize materialistic uh aspects of life at every corner where you think if I don't have a cough, I don't have a uh diamond earrings, I don't have a watch or anything, then I'm not successful, I'm poor and all this other insanity where they're saying, you know, that. NBA or professional sports or being a rapper, that's what you must strive to, to be successful. When the reality is, at least we should be teaching our young people that when you look at becoming a professional basketball player, you got about 10 million people if you look at the children in high school all trying to dream about being in the national basketball association competing for 350 jobs whereas if they go and they decide they're going into engineering well you now got you know a smaller number of people are competing for many many more jobs i mean it's just simple arithmetic That if your objective is to become an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, uh, any manner of things, a scientist, you have a much better chance of achieving that objective than becoming a professional athlete or becoming a successful rapper. And so we have to inspire our children that most of the time, the people who become the most successful in life may not have the most money, uh, like some people who are uh, achieve like a LeBron James or or Jay Z. But the majority of the people who have successful lives not based on materialism, but based on the ability to be able to provide for your family and make sure that your children are properly educated and have quality access to health care and all those other important things are people who focus in on education, not some pie in the sky uh, pipe dream that we keep pushing on our children. And when you don't achieve that pipe dream, then you find yourself on the road to the, school, the prison pipeline and you start committing crime in your own community because you haven't been taught a proper value system of what is truly valuable in this society, in this community.
1: So one community that is referenced quite a bit in the book is Baltimore City. And this is a question for Mr. Williams, because you wrote most of the essays and you first introduced us to some of the the challenges of um, Of the schools in Baltimore, the teachers, the students—why focus so much of the book on Baltimore? What made, what stood out to you about that city?
0: Um, In the book, um, I've wrote some chapters on transparency, and home life, and uh, listen—the the the results, the the grade point average of the kids in that school. uh, When you talk about almost. 56% 56% of the students has less than a uh, 2.0 average, almost 1.4 average. I mean, that's almost unheard of. And when the school system tells you there's no such thing as ghost students and that school students are in the classroom and you go out and find students who have not been in the classroom for two or three years and the school system is being paid on those students and... You file a lawsuit and realize that the school board, in and of itself, they lie to you. They tell you whatever they want you to hear because they don't think that you're going to have the resources. Go and sue them and judge rules in your favor. That You have to turn over the records and you begin to to see the facts. And so, Baltimore is just a microcosm for the rest of the country. But I don't know, maybe Rochester may come close, maybe Los Angeles, but... Baltimore school system is just unprecedented. I think that's one of the reasons why Attorney Crump joined in the lawsuit that they filed against the Baltimore City Law School. And it's a very unique lawsuit where we pay tax dollars to the Baltimore City School, but we get no return on our taxes. And never before in the history of the United States, have a judge ever rule for a lawsuit of this nature to go forward? And as a result, and I believe of, of Mr. Attorney Crump being a part of this lawsuit, the court ruled that this lawsuit would go forward. And so what we're doing, we're empowering parents. We're empowering teachers, giving parents, and you you would be stunned that when we have town hall meetings in Baltimore with our crisis in the classroom, which Mr. Crump has participated, when you hear parents saying thank you, when Mr. Crump and I travel across the country, parents say, oh, we hear what you're doing in Baltimore, we hear what you're doing, crisis in education. Can you come to Rochester? Can you come to Dallas? Can you come to Los Angeles? Can you come to places in South Carolina? When you begin, in fact, Mr. Crump, when we started this, he thought there was going to be an outrage and a blowback from the community that he's filing a lawsuit because what is perceived against about black people who really run the school system and run the city, but parents don't care about who runs the school system, whether they're black, white, or Hispanic. They care about their children learning, and so that lawsuit was unprecedented. And and something you asked Mr. Crump, why focus on crime? Let me remind you, Delise, ninety percent of black families who are victims of violence and then dying from gun violence. They're not being killed by white people. They're being killed by white, by blacks. If you cut down on the violence in these black communities, many more lives in the black communities will be saved. I think that's what we forget about. I know we like to focus on police brutality with law enforcement and black kids being unfairly maligned, killed, uh, and profiled, and that is a problem that, Ms. that Attorney Crump and his law firm addresses very well. But let's keep in mind, uh, it is overwhelming, just out of control the number of blacks who kill each other and it seems like we have less value on their life. Look at Chicago, Uh, look at places across the country. So if you're able to reduce um, the violence in these black communities, it's black lives that you're saving.
1: And Mr. Crump, can you tell us as much as you're able to um, about what exactly your involvement is with this lawsuit um, in Baltimore that you mentioned in the book? It's only like a line or two, but what can you say about it now?
2: Certainly and we, we are in active litigation so, you know, we we have to be careful of what we say about the lawsuit. But Armstrong is correct. Uh I joined the lawsuit and I I'm always concerned uh when we're just attacking people versus trying to uh help with the solutions. And so a lot of the leadership there were allies of me or many are the fronts that we fight against, you know, uh, systemic uh, oppression. However, uh, Armstrong is correct, and we have to challenge a failing system to do better. And so, in that lawsuit, it's unprecedented because the court gave standing to the taxpayers of the city of Baltimore to say that you have a right to make the school district be accountable to you? Why is this, uh, these educational outcomes so dismal? Uh, Why is it that you have not been keeping accurate records as it relates to truancy and uh, relates to graduation rates and uh, the young people being able to read and write literally the least. That's what we were dealing with when this lawsuit, we were looking at witnesses by a dozen saying, no, I got a diploma, but I never went to school. I never went to class. And you can't have that. We have to first be honest with ourselves to acknowledge that there's a problem before we can solve the problem. And so this lawsuit is going to, let us take what we call discovery in the law and take depositions where officials will have to raise their right hand to tell the truth about what's really going on. And if they don't tell the truth, they could be held accountable for perjury. So we believe that we're going to finally get to the truth and transparency and then we can solve these problems because it's, and to me, many of our children who are being harmed by us not being transparent, not being truthful, and not trying to uh, think about different strategies. There is no one answer that fits all parts of society, all parts of the community, and certainly not all parts of the education system, but they are not willing to sit down and talk and get to the table And so my participation in the lawsuit was to try to hold a mirror to their face and say, at least acknowledge the situation and let's come to the table. And uh, I I thank people like Armstrong and others for saying we have to try everything. We cannot look the other way. You know, it would be easy for Armstrong being a media Uh, conglomerate entrepreneur to say well it doesn't affect my life why do I care well it affects all of us if our children are not being educated properly because in the end it will affect America in whole and so if you believe that we can make America live up to its highest ideals, that all of our children have an equal opportunity at life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness, then you must deal with the crisis in the classroom. And Deleese,
0: what he just described with the Baltimore lawsuit, is similar all over the country, which is the impetus for this book. And that is the crisis in the classroom that we're fighting to empower these parents, to empower these kids and these communities that we cannot wait on the government. We cannot wait on someone else. We must be, the change. And Thank that's why so we're doing this crisis in the classroom.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Williams. Thank you so much, Mr. Crump. I look forward to hearing much more about the book, but I appreciate today's discussion as well. Thank, Thank you, you Delise.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with non-fiction book publishing industry experts.